0: Today, we continue our sermon series, Acts of Generosity, as part of our stewardship emphasis. And so far, we've heard two stories from the book of Acts, where things were pretty much hunky-dory, but now things don't go so well. Listen to this passage from Acts 6. Now, during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the 12 called together the whole community of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, select from among yourselves, seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In the first century Mediterranean world, this was not the only book of Acts. It was a common literary genre. There were lots of Acts. We have lots of gospels. There were lots of Acts, Acts of this person or of that or of this group. Tradition has it, this one would be called the Acts of the Apostles. That little word Acts could be translated as also as actions, or better yet, adventures. Adventures. Can you in your mind hear the theme song to Indiana Jones? If so, that's perfect for this. Seriously, I'll give you just a little taste. Some apostles get arrested, falsely accused, thrown into prison, but there's a prison escape. That's an adventure with the help of God. Or how about Paul? He's on a ship in the Mediterranean. A storm comes up. Everybody is on deck, afraid they're going to die, and somehow they survive. It's an adventure. Now, it's not like there's that big boulder in the Indiana Jones that's going to roll somebody over, but I mean, there's an apostle who's warming himself by a fire when a poisonous snake bites him and he lives. That's pretty good stuff. Next to that though, this story seems a bit subdued or maybe boring, right? I mean, you heard it. There's, there's some growth among the group, but there's some widows, one group of widows who's being neglected in the distribution of food. They're, they're going without food. And so a complaint arises, which of course it should. The 12 apostles who are now in charge because Jesus has taken off, well they call a meeting of the whole community and they suggest a division of labor, that there'll be this group who waits on these widows. They'll call them deacons and the apostles will continue to do what they do. And that's their motion, so to speak. And and it finds favor with the whole community. And after that, sort of happily ever after. And that's a Pretty good story, not really, is it? I mean, it's not even close to the adventures of the high seas and the Mediterranean. It's not even close. My wife and I, two weeks ago, went to hear the Kansas City Symphony, but not at the Kaufman. They were performing at the high school near us, a benefit for the music programs in our district. They did eight pieces, two of them by John Williams the theme song to Star Wars and Indiana Jones. Trust me, Brahms' lullaby did not have a chance. I mean, it just felt like a snore, you know, compared to The Great Adventures. But don't sell this story short. It touches on the most important theme in the entire book of Acts. And more than that, I think we have perhaps misread the story down through the centuries, if we've even read it. The others get more attention. Two things at least stand out. One is when the complaint arises, the 12 get up and they give this, it's not right speech. Only their it's not right speech goes like this. It's not right that we should have to wait on tables which sort of sounds to me like they think they're above such a thing. You know, like, well, we'll, we'll do what apostles do. We're not, we're not doing that. And not just that, but when they get through and it says it found favor with the whole community, which sounds great because up till now, we've heard stories about they were of one heart and mind and soul. So here it is again, they're all in agreement. But here's my question. Did it find favor with God? Congregations have done things for centuries that they all agreed upon. But what about God? I think about congregations in the 60s who turned away persons of color, found favor with the whole community. Or even to this day, people turning away LGBTQ persons because, well, it found favor with the community. But what about God? Or more in keeping with this story, What about the congregations who decide not to feed the poor? And I mean, decide that. You know about Micah ministry, many of you do. Every Monday night for years, we've been a participant in this, sponsor, co-founders of the whole thing. And the idea is that the poor are fed, hundreds of people every Monday night. Well, Daryl and Sharon Cantrell, who were over it for years and retired now, they went, they told me stories about going to churches and saying, here's what we're going to do, we'd like your support. And several of them said, no, 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 I I don't think so. What? They didn't have their own food pantries. These were churches that chose not to feed the hungry. How do you do that? But the thing is, this story is not just about food. It touches on the most important theme in the book of Acts. It's about inclusion. It's about who gets to eat and who doesn't, who's worthy to be fed and who's not, who's in, who's out. You know, later in the book of Acts, it's all about this tension between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jews, but here they're both Jews. It's both groups of widows who are Jewish. It's just that one speaks a different language. Who deserves to be fed and maybe who doesn't? If you're looking for a good summer read, I would highly suggest Sarah Miles' memoir, Take This Bread. It's not new, but it's so good. I was rereading it this week. She describes herself as a middle-aged left-wing lesbian who had been a journalist for part of her career and another part in the restaurant industry. At the age of 46, she wanders into a church, has her first communion at 46, and looks around and goes, huh, churches have food. We should be feeding people. So she... Starts working behind the scenes, she gets it organized, and the people in the church are, for the most part, okay with the Friday afternoon food pantry. But that's not her vision. Her vision is sacks of groceries near or on this table on Sundays, where the poor can come and eat this meal and get food. And that did not find favor with the whole community. I've been reading Matthew Desmond's new book on poverty in America, and he put me on to a book that I did not know by Tolstoy, What Then Must We Do? People know the Russian novelist for War and Peace and Anna Karenina. Well, after he'd written those two novels, he moved into the city of Moscow and he was appalled. He could not believe that there was town poverty city poverty. See, he came from the countryside and he said, it sort of made sense out there. There weren't a lot of resources. People just kind of did what they did to get by. But he moved into a city that had all this stuff and he thought, how can there be this much stuff and yet people be poor? So he wrote a book about it. And he, he said, well, it's really clear the problem's not the poor. They work harder than any of us. So it must be us. And he included himself and he said, We must be either ignoring them or taking advantage of them or both. We need need to do something. And that did not find favor with the whole community. His little phrase about town poverty or city poverty reminded me of the book that Lena Place wrote for our centennial. The history of our church. She called it a city church. It makes really good sense because, well, when the Disciples of Christ denomination was planting churches in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it was a rural movement in many ways in small towns across the Midwest. But the idea to, to put this church here was to say it'll be a church in the city, a city church. But but we're a city church not just because we're in the city, but because we are for the city, the whole city, including the poor, in the Northeast, and elsewhere. We participate in something bigger than ourselves. Now, I don't know what kind of grades you made in Sunday school, and yes, I know they don't really give grades in Sunday school, but if, if if you know at least this, give yourself an A, that widows are favored by God. It's in the Bible. Luke, who writes the book of Acts, also writes a gospel. He's got all kinds of stories about widows. But it goes back to the First Testament. And it's mentioned in several places, but one of the first places is in the book of Exodus. And the command is given, care for the widow. But here's what's just amazing to me. In the same verse, it's paired with, because you were slaves in Egypt... Because you were a vulnerable people, care for the vulnerable. You know, at some point it hits us. We could have been born Greek-speaking widows. We could have been born Hispanic-speaking migrants at the southern border. And so God says, care for the vulnerable. And so every spring, three, four weeks, we do this campaign of generosity and there are so many things involved but really at the bottom of it at the bottom line is we're asking you to, to pledge money to write a check to do direct deposit to sustain the ministries of feeding those poor and caring for them that's what we do but there's more required And I was thinking about this because I was reading back through Luke's first volume, his gospel, where he tells this great parable, probably one of the best known, about the Samaritan. So this parable is so well known that for years, in small groups and in retreats, even with clergy, I would do this, I'd say, okay, we're gonna retell it from memory. Collectively, let's just pitch in, what do you remember? And it almost always goes like this. I mean, there's varying details, right? Not everybody, you know, memorizes it all. But it goes something like this. The group says, well, there was this guy, and he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among some robbers, and they beat him up and left him there. And then two people came by. And some groups remember the identity of them, some don't. But they passed by on the other side. And then there was this third guy. He was a Samaritan, and he saw him, and he had compassion and he, he bandaged his wounds, and he put him on his donkey, and he took him to an inn, and he, and he told the innkeeper, here, this should cover it, and if it adds up to more, I'll come back by and pay you even more. And that's pretty much what groups remember. I've never been with a group that didn't remember this little part about how the guy said, here, let me help you pay for this, and I'll pay you more. Everybody remembers that. I kind of called it the American way, write a check. Very few remember this little word, this little phrase, and he took care of him. It says he took him to an inn and took care of him, and then he gave the money, and then he said to the innkeeper, you take care of him, and if it adds up, I'll give you more. It's writing a check and giving yourself away. That is the most powerful combination there is. And I know it finds favor with God and hopefully with the whole community.